0: You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It was a new virtual experience for the four big tech titans on Wednesday. Five hours of often combative questions from lawmakers who accused them of using their company's immense power to crush rivals and squash competition. The CEOs, Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Apple's Tim Cook... Google's Sundar Pichai and Amazon's Jeff Bezos, whose platforms have a combined value of nearly $5 trillion, testified that their companies face tough competition.
1: Our business model is advertising, and we face intense competition.
0: I would describe it as a street fight for market share in the smartphone business. Competition drives us to innovate, and it also leads to better products.
1: We have a policy against using seller-specific data uh, to aid our private label business. Uh, But I can't guarantee you that that policy has never been violated.
0: Joining me is Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. So, Jen, did the House Antitrust Subcommittee make the case that the big tech companies use their power to stifle competition and have to be reined in?
2: Well, to some extent they did. I mean, what they showed is that they have, through their investigation, found documents that suggest that there has been anti-competitive conduct or or potentially anti-competitive conduct by these companies and they highlighted some of those documents. So, you know, but what we saw here is a snippet and antitrust really relies on, you know, the totality of the evidence and all of the issues and decisions with respect to different conduct and different contracts and strategies of companies. So, you know, we saw this just a granule of really what needs to be looked at to determine whether these companies are violating the antitrust laws. But from this window that we saw with cherry-picked documents, yes, what they suggested is that these companies have, in ways, abused power in certain markets.
0: Mark Zuckerberg got the most questions and seemed to have the toughest time as representatives repeatedly cited internal documents to show how Facebook has either copied or simply acquired competitors. Did you warn Evan Spiegel, the founder of Snapchat, that Facebook was in the process of cloning the features of his company while also attempting to buy Snapchat?
1: Congresswoman, I don't remember those specific conversations, but... That was also an area where it was very clear that we were going to be building something.
0: And Zuckerberg was also grilled over the acquisition of Instagram. How did he fare?
2: Yeah, I think if you think in terms of the four different companies and which one came out the worst from an antitrust perspective, you know, in my mind, it would be Facebook and it would be this issue. I think Facebook of these four companies is the one that's most at risk to ultimately down the road, whether it's through enforcement or through legislation, may face efforts to divest you know, Instagram and or WhatsApp. And what the representative was able to do was show documents that suggested that the reason for buying Instagram was to take out a rival. Now, again, as I said, antitrust violations depend on the totality of the evidence. And so we'd need to see what the other side of the story is. And there's always more to a story, but it doesn't look good. You know, if you go back to the Microsoft case, which is sort of, I guess the bible for how to move forward against these companies on a question of illegal monopolization, you know, the standard that was set out there was sort of shown to be met in certain ways by the documents that were shown and the responses that Mark Zuckerberg gave. You know, and whether as a general matter the exclusion of this particular rival or threat is capable, reasonably capable of of helping the excluder maintain their monopoly, that would be Facebook, which Seemingly, it does. And whether or not at the time that the company was acquired, did it reasonably constitute a nascent threat? And, you know, it looks like it, too, because Mark Zuckerberg said yes, that it did.
0: So in your mind, then, Mark Zuckerberg didn't give a really good answer or explanation for Facebook's actions, that they were not anti-competitive.
2: Well, he wasn't really given an opportunity. I mean, the, the format really was much more of a, a cross-examination type format than it was information gathering. You know, with each of the lawmakers only able to have five minutes of questioning and wanting to get out all of the questions they had in mind, they weren't really offering the CEOs much time to explain anything. And so, again, what we saw is part of the story and not all the facts and not the entire story. And so it's important what else is out there and what other reasons Facebook may have had for deciding to acquire Instagram, and what its other documents look like at the time that acquired the company. I mean, there were three different regulators, or at least two different regulators, that looked at this deal. The FTC did look at it for some time. It wasn't a long investigation. It looks like about four or five months that they looked at the Instagram acquisition before they cleared it. And I believe it was also the UK antitrust regulator that looked at that deal and concluded, that the companies at the time didn't compete, that Instagram didn't really have much of a foothold on the market, and that it wasn't an anti-competitive deal. So, you know, we also have to go back and look at all the documents that those two regulators were looking at at the time of the deal to to look at the whole story, to, to understand what happened there.
0: Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, what are the prospects for actual antitrust action by regulators? And we'll look at the testimony of the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, and Google. So my first question, Mr. Pichai, is why does Google steal content from honest businesses? Uh, Mr. Chairman, uh, with respect, uh, I disagree with that characterization. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg. For the last year, the House Judiciary's Antitrust Subcommittee has been investigating the business practices of the tech giants for anti-competitive conduct that might lead to more regulation or even breakups. That investigation showed on Wednesday as the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google faced some tough, focused questions backed up by a mountain of subpoenaed documents. The chairman of the committee, David Cicilline, challenged Google's CEO Sundar Pichai about tactics used to stifle competition. investigation shows that Google's response was to threaten to delist Yelp entirely. In other words, the choice Google gave Yelp was, let us steal your content Or effectively disappear from the web. Mr. Pachai, isn't that anti competitive? Congressman, uh, you know, when I run the company, I'm really focused on giving users what they want. We conduct ourselves to the highest standard. I've been talking to Jennifer Reed, Bloomberg Intelligence senior litigation analyst. It seemed as if Pachai struggled to answer the questions about advertising tech, where the company built a dominant position, mostly through acquisitions. So explain that issue and how he handled it.
2: I think that overall, he he was generally trying to follow what was probably guidance to stick with his own talking point and where he might have had difficulty answering a question to go back to his own storyline and, and what he wanted to say. And I think that's what he was doing a bit there. But again, you know, you have to go back and look. The double click acquisition, which is part of this ad tech buy, was extensively and intensely investigated by one of the antitrust authorities in the U.S., extensively and thoroughly looked at before it was determined that the deal could go forward. And again, all of the documents that are available today were available to those regulators at that time. And so certainly mistakes can be made. And maybe it was one of the other smaller acquisitions down the chain and not just the double-click acquisition that gave Google this control that they seem to have across that whole chain of distribution from advertiser to publisher. But I don't think that he handled it all that well. But I will say again what I have said before, that the format was really more like a cross-exam. And without giving the CEOs much time to really respond and and explain away what they were doing and what they were thinking and and what the purpose for some of their conduct was. So, no, I don't think he came off very well there. And along with Facebook, I would say Google has risk and they have risk in that area. And we are aware that the Department of Justice has looked at targeted that specific area, the ad tech space with respect to their own investigation, which we understand may culminate in a lawsuit against Google or some sort of an action against Google this year.
0: This was Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos' first appearance at a congressional hearing. Many of the questions to him focused on the company's treatment of small merchants who use Amazon's online marketplace to reach customers. Here's Democratic Congresswoman Lucy McBath asking questions about frustrated sellers. If Amazon didn't have monopoly power over these
2: sellers, do you think they would choose to stay in a relationship that is characterized by bullying, fear, and panic?
1: With all respect, Congresswoman, I I do not accept the premise of your question.
2: You know, I would say that when companies compete vigorously, they often are going to invoke fear and even the concept of bullying among smaller competitors. I mean, Intense competition can engender that same reaction as can anti competitive exclusionary conduct. I imagine there are suppliers to Walmart that would say the exact same thing. I'm only guessing, you know, it's scary to have to negotiate against such a powerful company. And again, we have these cherry picked documents. Now, you know, I'm not saying that Amazon hasn't crossed the line with respect to the way it treats online sellers, but you'd also have to see what else is out there and what everyone else is saying, and for each of those sellers, what their particular situations were with respect to the pushback that they got from Amazon. So I would say once again that because the antitrust and the decision as to whether conduct is anti-competitive really is fact-intensive. It's a fact-intensive decision that's based on the totality of evidence and not just certain cherry-picked items. You know, you'd know, you have to see everything else. But like some of these other companies, what was highlighted does look problematic, So it does suggest there could be a problem there. But we just don't know the whole story. And until that whole story comes out, which it would if there was some sort of a trial against one of these companies, you know, we can't really determine what the outcome might be.
0: Amazon has been accused of using data from independent sellers to create copycat products. And they've categorically denied that until this hearing when Bezos said he couldn't guarantee that didn't happen.
2: Yes, that's right. And that's not helpful to him. It's definitely not helpful to Amazon. I mean, I think the issue was that there is a policy within Amazon and it looks like that policy may have been broken. Uh, This happens in companies more often than it should. And it's, at least according to Bezos, they're still looking at it after the Wall Street Journal reported on it. They're still doing their own internal investigation to understand what happened. And that's why he can't respond to it. But, you know, if in fact that is going on, it's not a good sign for Amazon. And it's just yet more ammunition to the extent that the Department of Justice or the Federal Trade Commission decide to bring an enforcement action or Congress decides to go forward with some sort of legislation. It's just yet more on, in their arsenal as a reason to do
0: something like that. Apple and CEO Tim Cook seem to get the least heat, and the questions were really based on the App Store.
2: Sir, we have
1: never increased commissions in the store since the first day it operated in 2008. There's nothing to stop you from doing so, is it? No, sir, I disagree strongly with that. There is a competition for developers just like there's a competition for
2: customers. First, I think it's not surprising that Apple got the the least heat. I I think of all these companies, Apple's at the least risk here. And its conduct is less sort of blatantly anti-competitive to the outside observer. The idea that it charges 30% commission at least in the beginning, to some of the apps in its app store, really, to me, isn't an antitrust violation when a company has a product or a service that they can price the way they want to. And even if it's monopoly pricing, if they've achieved the monopoly lawfully, they can lawfully price in a monopolistic manner. You know, if they've achieved that monopoly unlawfully, that's a different thing. But I'm not so sure that there are allegations that the development of the app store in itself was an unlawful monopoly. So I don't know that they got very far with Apple on this. And the other idea that I think they were questioning Apple on, that it might treat different app developers differently. You know, companies strike different kinds of deals with their suppliers all the time. This doesn't necessarily violate the laws. You know, where a company is supplying another company in bulk, they might get better pricing than a company that isn't. That's negotiation. And I'm not so sure that that rises to the level of an antitrust violation. So of all of the companies, I think Apple came out the most unscathed. And I don't think that's surprising because I think that they're at the lowest level of risk for an enforcement action to begin with.
0: There are state and federal antitrust investigations into these tech companies. Which companies look like there might be some kind of legal action taken against them?
2: Well, my assumption is that all four of these companies are under investigation by the FTC and or DOJ. The ones we know for a fact are Google and Facebook because they've disclosed that when these investigations go forward, they're confidential. Unless the company discloses it or somehow it otherwise gets leaked, you know, we don't know for sure. But they probably all four have been under investigation. And what we know, because I think the DOJ has been somewhat transparent about it, is that right now, the most advanced investigation seems to be against Google. And we've heard a lot about the possibility of some complaint or challenge being filed against Google this year. And I say some sort of complaint or challenge, because if it's challenged, there's always the possibility of a settlement, although I tend to doubt it. I think the DOJ would like to bring a lawsuit against Google, and they'd like to do that before the election. So there's a good possibility we'll see that. And it could focus in this ad tech space. It could also focus in other areas as well. But we have heard a lot about the DOJ looking at this ad tech space and having some issues with Google's control of sort of the whole supply chain there. It also looks like the FTC may be fairly well advanced with respect to its investigation of Facebook leaks that are reported in the news that it's possible there could be some sort of an action against Facebook as early as the first quarter or maybe even the fourth quarter. And that could be significant because I think of all four companies, if any of the antitrust authorities are going to go forward and seek a court ordered breakup, in my mind, Facebook has the most risk for that. So, That could be an interesting development if that's the kind of remedy that they look for if they file a lawsuit against Facebook. It looks like, you know, if Amazon and Apple are actually being investigated, they're a little bit farther behind. But it doesn't mean that there won't also be actions brought against those two companies next year.
0: The instructive case here is Microsoft. And in the end, there was no breakup of Microsoft. So what are the chances that, let's say, Facebook would be required to divest Instagram or WhatsApp?
2: It would be an uphill climb to get there in court. And you said it. I mean, this is what we saw in Microsoft. Microsoft was a really good case for the Department of Justice. You know, They did a good job. There was a lot of evidence, a pretty long list of conduct and contracts and strategies that Microsoft engaged in that were just blatantly exclusionary and intended for no other reason but to hurt its rivals. You know, when asked, what is your business reason for doing this? In many cases, Microsoft had nothing to say, and in some cases, they did have something to say, but whatever they were saying was deemed to be a sham. So that's what has to happen here. You have to look at the anti-competitive conduct and the harm and then balance it against whatever the pro-competitive legitimate business reason for that exclusion was. And so in Microsoft, where you had a case where you really had this blatantly anti-competitive conduct and no flip side no pro-competitive business justification that could be weighed against it. And even then, the regulators weren't able to achieve a breakup. You know, it's hard to see what it's going to take to get there. But Microsoft does lay out that possibility. You know, what Microsoft in the appellate decision, the decision that resulted in reversing um, the possibility of a breakup, what they said was that it will be an illegal exercise of market power if as a general matter, the exclusion of that threat is the type of conduct reasonably capable of contributing to the defendant's continued monopoly power. Well, you know, it's fairly easy to say that's probably the case in Facebook's situation. And then the second standard they said is whether or not that excluded company, in this case Instagram, reasonably constituted a nascent threat at the time that it was acquired. These are the two standards Microsoft lays out to say first, is it anti-competitive? Does it violate the antitrust laws? And it looks like Facebook fits into that. But then what the Microsoft appellate court said was that the appropriate remedy is a really difficult decision because divestiture is only imposed with great caution. And that's because its long-term efficacy is rarely certain. And absent some measure of confidence that there's been an actual loss to competition that has to be restored, wisdom counsels against Adopting that kind of radical structural release. And it's that clause in Microsoft, I think, in my mind, that, that makes it a little bit tough here. Because it's so hard for any judge to look into a crystal ball and to say, what's going to happen if? What, what will happen if we require Facebook to divest Instagram or WhatsApp? What, what will happen to those companies? And certainly a world in which those companies exist for users and exist in the way they do, well capitalized and with R&D behind them, is a better world where they cease to exist for consumers or exist but not in the same shape that they're in now. And I think that's a very difficult decision that that judges are going to be very cautious about making.
0: Thanks, Jen. That's Jennifer Ree, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Litigation Analyst. You're listening to From Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Law with June Grasso. Uber, Postmates, and DoorDash are pushing a $110 million ballot initiative to overturn a California law designed to force them to treat rideshare and delivery drivers as employees. At the same time, an elite legal team at Gibson, Dunn, and Crutcher is trying to avoid a court ruling they say could decimate the app-based business model, playing the long game in California courts. Joining me is Christopher Opfer, Bloomberg Law team leader in the business of law. Chris, tell us about attorney Ted Boutros, who leads the GO team at Gibson Dunn.
1: So Ted Boutros is a partner at Gibson Dunn, which is a uh, well-known white shoe law firm. Uh, he's based in the Los Angeles office. Um, this is a guy who is a seasoned litigator, high profile, uh, Southern California attorney, who's well-known for representing a lot of big name clients. He's also known uh, for having like a very noticeable shock full head of white hair uh, that's kind of become his calling card in some legal circles. It's uh, it's the way that people think of him, uh, um, you know, when you talk about Ted Ted Boutreff, that's one of the first things that comes up. Um, But he's a famed uh, First Amendment lawyer who uh, these days has spent a lot of time uh, going up against President Donald Trump and the Trump administration in court, uh, among other notable clients. He recently represented uh, Mary Trump, uh, the president's niece, as well as John Bolton, the president's former national security advisor, in a pair of cases in which uh, Trump was trying to prevent the publication of tell-all books. Food Trust has also represented a number of media figures. He was the lawyer for CNN in a case revolving around anchor Jim Acosta's the, the revocation of his press pass. Uh, he handled a similar case involving a reporter at Playboy, and he's been involved in uh, related litigation involving uh, Rachel Maddow. So, recently, really, a lot of his uh, high profile uh, has come from those cases, these First Amendment cases. He's also an outspoken Trump administration critic on Twitter. He's gone so far as to offer to pick up the legal fees for anyone who um, finds himself in court on the other end of a free speech lawsuit by the Trump administration. And Boutros himself has said he will defend those people in court free of charge. Uh, So so this is somebody who's got a high profile, uh, also self-identified as a a liberal Democrat, uh, has been involved in a number of social uh, related issues as well. Uh, he teamed up with uh, Ted Olson, who is also a Gibson and partner and a former George W. Bush solicitor general to challenge California's ban on same-sex marriage about a decade ago and successfully had that overturned.
0: He's a liberal Democrat, but he represents big companies in court against the little guy, against environmental concerns, or is that his firm that does that?
1: It's a little bit of both. So Boutreau's himself also, you know, a little more quietly, has also been representing some of the biggest employers in the country in class action litigation brought by workers who have said their labor and employment rights have been violated. Most notably was a case called Walmart v. Dukes, which went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Utrecht, um argued that case on behalf of Walmart, and he convinced the Supreme Court to rule Um, that a large group of thousands of Walmart workers who were suing for pay discrimination and harassment uh, simply couldn't do that all in one class action lawsuit, and instead they had to bring individual lawsuits. And that's a really good example of some of the um, legal work that he's done, particularly in respect to uh, defending large corporations in court. Uh, It's those sort of procedural uh, almost some, some of his critics might say technicality, uh, sort of the legal wrangling over the details uh, and the intricacies of the law rather than getting to uh, the actual accusations in any of those cases and, and getting to a judge saying whether or not, you know, the employer actually violated the law here. And that's, you know, really been a key part of his and, and the rest of the Gibson Dunn uh, playbook. In terms of defending Uber and some of the other gig economy companies in
0: court. Do you know how many cases they've represented Uber and Postmates and, and DoorDash in?
1: Based on our analysis of the dockets, it, it looks like roughly, uh, the Gibson Dunn team has represented Uber in roughly 50 cases. They've represented, uh, DoorDash, I think, in something like 15. And I want to say there were nine or so. Uh, for Postmates. And all of that litigation revolves around the same central legal question that's really been dogging uh, all of the gig economy companies. And that is whether or not that the drivers or couriers or, or food deliverers that these companies connect with end users via their app platforms, whether those workers need to be classified as company employees, or whether as the companies are doing now, uh, they can simply make them independent contractors who are largely considered basically self-employed entrepreneurs.
0: Is there a strategy in these cases just to avoid the main question with procedural maneuvering, to avoid the question of whether drivers are employees?
1: There is, and that's for a couple of reasons. So, number one, uh, the classification of the drivers as uh contractors is really a central part of the business model and if uber and the other companies were all of a sudden forced to uh, make those drivers employees they would have to pick up the tab for things like workers compensation overtime minimum wages unemployment insurance and they would also have to start kicking in tax money we see in new jersey for example the state has gone after uber alleging that the company should have been classifying drivers as employees. And as a result of that, skipped out on $650 million worth of taxes. So we're talking about a ton of money here. And that's why it's really important for the companies to try to avoid uh, a court ruling uh, forcing them to reclassify the drivers. And so they've done that. They've avoided that in a couple of ways. Uh, One thing is arbitration that's gotten a lot of publicity, the company's use of arbitration agreements. So when drivers sign up for the platform to start driving for Uber, they sign an agreement that says any disputes that they wind up having with the company have to be taken to private arbitration. So that's behind closed doors, not in court. Those rulings are subject to confidentiality. And so we really have very little idea about how those are playing out. But what we do know is that the debates over the legal disputes over arbitration have been sort of ping-ponging around the courts, And so you'll get a case, uh, this has happened several times, in which a class action filed, but the parties may spend years or more just debating this question of whether or not the case needs to go to arbitration without ever getting to the question of whether or not the drivers have to be classified as employees. So that's a main tactic there and we've seen that um throughout uh, California in particular uh has been a, a battleground state for that. But in addition to that, you know, Uber has been tactical in terms of settling cases uh when they need to. There was a uh, long running case, I think it spanned seven years and then finally a little less than a year ago, Uber agreed to settle that one for about twenty million dollars. And so what the plaintiff's lawyers say is that they're using some strategic maneuvers in the settlement phase as well. Because these are class actions, Uber is more often faced with several uh, similar lawsuits filed by different groups of drivers and different attorneys representing those drivers. And what the plaintiff's attorneys say is that the company has used this reverse auction strategy in which basically uh, they play the plaintiff's lawyers against each other. Uh, to try to drive down the settlement costs, uh, reaching a settlement agreement with the lowest bidder, and then drafting that agreement in a way that it applies to all of the cases and essentially knocks all of them out in one fell swoop. So those are the two primary tools that they've been using to keep these cases from getting decided before a judge. As far as we know, uh, only one case, and that was a case involving actually Grubhub drivers, has ever been decided by a court, and that was two or three years ago a magistrate judge in California said Grubhub drivers, in fact, are properly classified as contractors. They don't need to be made employees. But what's interesting about that is that since that decision, California has updated its law in a way that most people think makes it much, much harder for companies to continue uh, treating drivers as contractors.
0: Yeah. So tell us about that. Is that the provision that authorizes local government lawyers to intervene in these cases?
1: It is. So AB5 uh, was a very contentious piece of legislation that went into effect late last year in California. And the primary goal there by and large was to make Uber, Lyft and other gig companies start treating their, their drivers as employees And it created a bunch of hoops that the companies have to jump through if they want to keep treating those drivers as contractors instead. And the general thinking throughout the legal community is that the companies are really going to have a hard time meeting that standard and are likely going to have to reclassify the drivers as employees. And as a result of that, the companies have banded together and pledged $110 million on this ballot initiative. So in November, when voters go to the polls to vote in, Uh, state and local elections, as well as the the federal uh, presidential election, Um, they'll also be voting on a ballot initiative, which would essentially carve Uber, Lyft, and other gig companies out of this new classification law, giving them a legal shield. But what's interesting is that buried in AB5 uh, is a provision that not only allows the state, the California attorney general to enforce the law, but it also gives the power of enforcement to local lawyers, so city attorneys, district attorneys, and the like, which is out of the ordinary. Typically, state laws are enforced at the state level by by an attorney general. And so what that means is it expands the pool of government uh, lawyers who are going after Uber, Lyft, and other gig companies now in court. And that could be a bit of a game changer uh, for Boutros and the Gibson and lawyers who are representing these companies because some of the strategic moves they've been using are not likely to have the same effect on government lawyers. Uh, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, the arbitration agreements that the drivers sign don't apply to government lawyers because the government doesn't sign those agreements. The lawyers prosecuting those cases didn't sign those agreements they're not bound by arbitration and they're not forced to take those cases uh, to arbitration. So they can keep those cases in court and there's no real legal wrangling over the question of arbitration at all as a result of that. Number two, the incentive to settle is a lot different. So when we're talking about the government lawyers, these are people who are salaried attorneys who are paid by the government. They have no personal financial incentive to settle here. Like they don't get legal fees they don't get a piece of anything that, that Uber would pay in settlement. And so there's really little reason for them to agree to a settlement unless Uber and the like, as part of that settlement, would agree to reclassify the drivers as employees. And so that really eliminates two of the major tools that, that Uber, Postmates, and others have been using in court.
0: Is Gibson Dunn involved not only in the litigation strategy, but in the strategy you know, of getting a different law passed?
1: Their names have not shown up uh, on the lobbying disclosures. The companies, as you might imagine, have a small army of lobbyists, both in California and at the federal level, trying to get laws changed in their favor on this particular issue. But certainly they're aware of it. And, you know, just by looking at some of the defensive tactics that they use to try to slow things down, uh, avoid a ruling, you can see where they're going with this, that the roadmap really is. Let's pump the brakes here, hope for a win at the ballot box in November, and then we'll go back and settle or or try to resolve any remaining litigation,
0: and we'll move forward from there. Did anyone at Gibson Dunn comment on the strategy that you've written about?
1: Yes, they did. Um, They declined an interview, but but via email, Josh Lipschitz, who was one of the main Gibson Dunn attorneys who's part of Ted Boutros' team, Said that the, the team's pure objective was simple, and that's just to win the cases. Um, and he and he, he CNA Evangelist, who is another one of the, the top lawyers on the team, said a couple of things that we've heard elsewhere, which is, you know, the line from the companies is always that uh, drivers simply don't want to be employees. They like the freedom that comes with being a contractor, uh, which means they can work when they want, where they want, and for how. Ever long they want. Um, at the same time, they sort of try to pour cold water on this idea um, that they're using arbitration as any sort of shield. They point out that you know the, the terms of the arbitration agreements are clear to drivers when they choose to sign up. And they didn't really touch on the reverse auction piece of it. Um, but in court filings, you can sort of piece together uh, some of their thoughts on that, which is essentially from the defense bar's position you know the companies are just getting hit with a slew of class actions, which are often overlapping, um, and maybe brought by plaintiffs' attorneys looking for some fees. Uh, and in their from their perspective, they they never, you know, outwardly try to drive down the price, but certainly they're looking to settle these cases. And if they can resolve them on optimal terms, um, that's just good lawyering.
0: Turning now to a wildly different topic, what do we know about Alex Rodriguez and Jennifer Lopez wanting to buy the Mets?
1: So we know that they're interested in purchasing the club. Uh, It has been reported that they've made some initial offer to buy the club uh, from their longtime owners earlier this year. And we also know that they recently signed up a new legal representation called Wattell, which is a New York City firm that's known for being involved in a wide variety of high-profile deals, including those involving some pro sports team purchases.
0: It seemed as if the Mets were going to get sold. What happened to stop that?
1: That's right. It's really been a long time coming. seems like Stephen Cohen, the uh, hedge fund manager here in New York, was really the primary buyer and was likely to purchase the team. That deal appeared to be as good as done until in February, Cohen abruptly backed out, balking at some of the terms of the deal. And interestingly enough, in that round of negotiations, Cohen was also represented by the folks at Wachtell. And so he bowed out in February. And since that time has had a change of heart, he's come back trying to make another play at purchasing the team, competing with A-Rod and J-Lo. But of course, this time around, because they're represented by Wachtel, in the market for new legal representation.
0: Thanks, Chris. That's Chris Opfer, Bloomberg Law team leader in the business of law. And that's it for this edition of Bloomberg Law. I'm June Grosso, and this is Bloomberg.